couple months ago, Bishop Caggiano took some time to teach us about some lesser-known saints. That was a fun episode, so we're going to do it again today with saints whose feast days fall during Lent. Uh, you've heard some of these names before, others maybe not. But anyway, that's ahead today on Let Me Be Frank. Keep it right here, 1350 AM and 103.9 FM, and on your phone with the Veritas mobile app. The app is free at the Apple App Store, the Google Play Store, or at VeritasCatholic.com. Let Me Be Frank is brought to you by a grant from Foundations in Faith. Pastors and ministry leaders in the Diocese of Bridgeport are invited to apply for program support grants with the St. John Paul II Fund for Religious Education and Faith Formation. With a focus on youth engagement and innovative approaches, the JP2 Fund has funded diverse programs typically running from September to June. So pastors and ministry leaders here in the diocese can apply for up to $10,000 in support of religious education and faith formation programs. The application window is open now until Friday, March 31st. To apply, go online to foundationsinfaith.org. Okay, here we go. This is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. I'm Steve Lee, and it is my great pleasure as always to introduce Bishop Frank Caggiano. Hey, Excellency. Good morning, Steve. Good morning. So we continue our Lenten journey, huh? Yes. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Almost. We're almost to the midway point, I think. And in this, well, the third Sunday of Lent. So yeah, that's it. We're almost halfway there. Wow. Mm-hmm. It's j- everything just flies by. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so got to double down on the mortifications then. <laughs> Well, also, you know what? And winter is has its one less bite, no? Because we mm-hmm. had a great winter, but Mother Nature wants us to remember that she's in charge. So <laughs> right. it, it is what it is. And of course, St. Patrick's Day, St. Joseph's Day, they also signal the middle of Lent usually, Yeah, at least for this year. Yeah. So those are great feasts. And we're going to talk about saints today. However, we're not talking about St. Joseph and St. Patrick. We've talked enough about them. People know enough about them. Those are the only two right. that I know. <laughs> yeah, that's... Ooh, you lied. Look at you. Oh. In Lent. <laughs> no, so, I th- no, but what I think what we could do, if it's okay with you, is we could look at some of the saints that are being remembered in Lent during the season of Lent, because they actually are very interesting individuals, somewhat less known, right? That's cool, because we did this uh, a couple months ago in December... With uh, right. other saints that were lesser known. Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So I'm mm-hmm. buckled in. I'm ready for the ride. Yeah. And what I'm going to do is I arrange them. If we have time, there, there could be eight at this time. Okay. But I arrange them chronologically because chronologically, it's it's it, it's interesting. It gives you almost a window into the different eras of the church and what was going on in the church. So the very first person is St. Polycarp. What a name. I love the name. St. Polycarp, who is considered one of the apostolic fathers. So now what does that mean? Okay, so you have the apostles. As the apostles began to die, their successors or those who knew them personally, who were themselves bishops, or most were bishops, who continued the, the unbroken line as well as became the guarantors of what the apostles taught are considered the apostolic fathers. And among them, the three most famous 
are Ignatius of Antioch, which we have spoken about, because his famous line is he wants to be wheat ground into the mouth of the lion for Christ. Um, it's Saint Clement of Pope of the Saint Clement of Rome, and Saint Polycarp. Now, to situate it, if Saint Paul died about the year sixty three four five, well, Polycarp was born in the year sixty nine, and John the Apostle, the youngest of the apostles, would have been in his let's say I would think maybe in his later sixties at that point. Then Polycarp and St. John knew each other. Polycarp was a disciple of St. John, so you see the link, mm-hmm. which always intrigues me because I wonder to myself if St. Polycarp actually met the Blessed Lady, and I presume he did. Right. Because St. John was living in Antioch. St. John was giving care of Our Lady and went to Antioch to care for Our Lady until her assumption. So these are the sort of things that always intrigue me, right? So that's one thing. He's important simply because of that bridge. Yes. The second thing that I find really interesting about Polycarp is that he illustrates a time in the life of the church where there were lots of controversies. Can you imagine (laughs) the church in controversy? Never heard of it. (laughs) Never heard of it. So um, to highlight some, now some we think we, I mean, first, I was going to say we take for granted. It's just quite amazing. For example, the date of Easter, Polycarp, and the Roman church, because he was in Smyrna, right? Mm-hmm. So Polycarp and the church in Rome did not agree on the date of Easter. It was the beginning of the controversy that still exists. Which calendar do you follow to date Easter? And to this day, the Orthodox, as you know, and, and the Roman church do not agree on the date of Easter. And this talk about establishing one date by 2025, uh, because it is, I think, the 1700th anniversary of the Council of Nicaea mm. to try to bring that unity. But even in Polycarp's time, so I mean, second generation after the apostles, they weren't quite in sync. Mm-hmm. This is number one. Second controversy, or let's put it this way. I'm not sure controversy is the right word, but where there was not uniform practice was the actual celebration of the Lord's Day. Mm. Was it to be Saturday or was it to be Sunday? Right. Right? The Sabbath day or the day of recreation? And there is some indication in some of the writings that have been found that are attributed to Polycarp where he was somewhat of the opinion that it would have been the Sabbath day. Again, a difference. Now, you may say, well, that's really a big difference. But the truth is, it wasn't one that disqualified because the church was still discerning in its, in, when it's birth. These are the birthing years. What ultimately would be the practice? Right. Same for the hierarchy, believe it or not. Because Polycarp, in some of his writings, um, doesn't really speak so much about bishops but gives the impression, if I may put it that, of priest bishops, meaning that there were two gradations, not three, all right? What I'm going to say, priest and deacon, but priest being understood as the leader of the community, which you could understand in our theology, it has evolved that the bishop is the successor of the apostles, and then the priest is his, is, is his co-worker. So for Polycarp to be a bishop also, in some sense, included priesthood, which it does, but it wasn't distinguished yet Mm. in Smyrna. Isn't that interesting? Wow. So again, 
The fact that the church in its infancy could tolerate these differences made sense. Of course, now we are much more settled 2,000 years later in the practice of the church through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So there are going to be controversies, but some of these are settled. Mm -hmm. Much of it is settled. Yes. And people in their humility have to understand that. Anyway, Polycarp. All right. Polycarp. They could not kill this man if they wanted to. <laughs> Eventually they did because they burned him at the stake. And when he survived burning, then they stabbed him to death because the fire would not and could not consume him. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, that's... Right? And when they and when and when he died, that was again one of the earliest uh, testimonies to the fact that there was the fragrant smell that came upon his death. Right? We saw that Saint Therese. We see it in so many of the saints right throughout the ages. That's where we get this I, this phrase of the odor of sanctity. Yeah. Right, which is beautiful. Yeah. Right. And Polycarp is important because faithful to Christ, martyr for the faith, defended so much of what we take for granted, the incarnation, Jesus' real death on the cross, the Trinity, right, all the rest, died as a martyr. He was known by St. Irenaeus. So the next link in the chain went from St. John the Apostle to Polycarp, who tradition holds was ordained by John the Apostle as a bishop, and Polycarp was in some ways the model and teacher of Irenaeus, St. Irenaeus, who was in the 200s, one of the towering figures, right, of, um, of theology. Yes, from Lyon. So I think he's, yes, mm -hmm. and, and, and again, and so he, Irenaeus is the one who said the glory of God is manifest fully in, in man because we're made in the image and likeness of God. So I just find Polycarp to be a fascinating role model for many reasons. Because number one, he gave his life for Christ. Number two, he gave his life for Christ for the things he believed in and what the church eventually defined, even when there was controversy and he could have taken an easier way out. Mm -hmm. Right? He could have said, well, you know what, we'll just, yeah, if that's what you want to hold, that's fine. Just, just leave me alone. No. Right. He was also faithful to what he received, faithful passing it on to like the generation of Irenaeus. So we begin to see the magisterium being born in him. Right. Yes. This continuity of voice that continues to grow through the ages. So he is one of the first. And just as an aside, the phrase that he uses when he speaks of the hierarchy is elder bishops, if, if, so that you are a bishop and somehow this priesthood eventually gets developed as an aid. So in a sense, you really can't understand the priest unless you understand the bishop. It's two sides of one reality. Mm-hmm. Mm any questions on your part? Anything? No. Were you familiar with Polycarp before? I, I know Polycarp, um, uh, and I think he's probably one of the only ones that I'm going to know today. Um, I know he was, as you said, he was friends with um, Ignatius of Antioch, who famously mm -hmm. wrote those seven letters as he was taken to Rome. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. if I remember correctly, Excellency, didn't Ignatius spend some time with Polycarp 
along that journey? Like they stopped yes. there for a while and kind of strengthened yes. himself in the, that friendship? Yes. Yes. And they wrote letters to each yeah. other. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. And they strengthened each other in the martyrdom that they both had. But see, that's remarkable. So could you imagine in the 21st century, the bishops of the United States exchanging letters amongst each other because they knew they were going to die for the faith? What a different church that would be. Yep. And, and a lot of the nonsense that we are talking about, who, who, like, who would have time for the nonsense? <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, enough, enough of my commentary. Let's, right. let's keep moving because we have a lot to Perpet- go through. Yeah, Perpetua and Felicity. Okay. Now, they're in the Roman canon. Remember canon number one? Yes. So we hear about their names all the time. I wonder if anybody asks, who are these people? Okay. So then the next generation. So they're in Irenaeus' time in the 200s right, in the third century. We're not exactly sure what their birth dates are. But the interesting thing is Perpetua, 22 years old, pregnant at the time of her martyrdom, a noble woman, wealthy, and Felicity was her slave, Mm -hmm. also pregnant at the time, put to death. And they were companions, spiritual companions. So now let's think about this, for example. So what we ordinarily model and rightfully understand as, a, um, as an arrangement that is an affront to life that doesn't respect the dignity and liberty that a person is born with, which is basically an evil in any and all characterizations you can think of, that unfortunately in our age from the 16th century almost in some places to the modern era of afflicted cultures right races with such brutality and such sinfulness in the ancient world while it was still fundamentally sinful was very differently understood yes right mm-hmm. that's why saint paul says what he says in the in his epistle mm-hmm about slaves respecting your masters, because there was an intuition that those who were the, uh, the, the holders were really obligated to care for those that served them. Right. So there was a relationship of love besides one that was legal. Now, this didn't justify slavery. It does never, nothing can justify slavery. Right. But it is a different way of understanding it. And I raise it because people will read in the scriptures what St. Paul says and said, well, is this man out of touch? But it was a different context. Yes. Right? Yes. Mm-hmm. It was not the slavery that we knew here, as you said, in the Which 1600s. was so evil. Correct. Right. Right. Is it, right. right. So, but right. this is another story of beautiful, you know, friendship even, perpetual felicity. Without a doubt. And of course, you could go into the details. Some of them are, 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 are tradition. Some of them are attested of the tortures. Um, like uh, both were, 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 had, were pregnant and um, Perpetua in particular talks about the tortures that were given to her, which were just grossly inhumane mm. for a pregnant woman to endure. And you have to say to yourself, what type of mentality, regardless of, the, of, of whether or not she's considered a criminal in the law because she's a Christian, what type of mentality actually takes pleasure in that? Yeah. It's really sick. God forgive me, yeah. but it's really sick. And we're not going to talk about the death because that's we want to be a happy podcast, not a, a sad podcast. So 
But one of the things that I think is interesting in their time is it was in Carthage, right, that the idea became much more well-known of building basilicas over the places where the martyrs were buried. Okay. And that gives birth to this whole idea that there's not a Catholic church for public worship that shouldn't have relics of the saints, right, in their altar. Yes. But this is actually the body of the saints who would have been literally underneath the altar. Yeah. Because there's a continuity in history. So what's the intuition? Well, it's the communion of saints. We pray for their intercession. And again, in these eras, in these centuries, there was such controversy over the idea of whether or not we were actually praying to the saints, which we were not praying in to the saints for themselves. We were praying for intercession, their help. Yes. But we only adore and worship God. But that was established and settled in this age. And they were two of the most famous ones, right, to be buried. Yeah. Interesting, no? Yeah. I, I love the, what little I know of them because, uh, as you said, Excellency, they were in such a sick and deranged culture and and witnesses to life even and that's that's so relevant today we're in a sick and deranged culture and we need witnesses to life without a doubt yeah no without a doubt that's very well said and it's you know the human spirit is capable of tremendous depravity we saw it right in the 20th century mm-hmm. with the evils of nazi germany yes but there are evils going on today with genocide in Africa that for some reason we have turned a blind eye to in the West, particularly in our country. Mm-hmm. And you wonder to yourself, well, why is that? Right? It's, it's, it's a very sad commentary because on the opposite side, humanity and the human person is capable of heroic goodness. Why do we keep slipping backwards? Like, when are we going to learn our lesson yeah. as a race? Yeah, it's just an interesting question. Anyway, so so you have the this, the the third century, the Irenaeus of the world. You have the martyrs of the world, and that's going to move on to number three, okay, which is the patristic era, my favorite time in the church's life. And the patristic era, basically, we're talking about the fourth, fifth, and sixth centuries, and of course, even earlier, there were fathers of the church even before the the fourth century, but. It blossomed. Let's say the golden age of the patristic era was in the great controversies that were settled. And we've talked about that, about Christ- Christianity yes. and Christ himself. Now, let's consider. So you had Christians 200 years in the making who disagreed on the fundamental meaning of who Christ was, on his humanity and his divinity, on the effect of salvation won in the cross. Let's think about that for a second. Now, we're not talking two years. We're talking... 200 years, right? And that should be sobering and give us great consolation that if there are disagreements in the modern church, they will be resolved much faster than 200 years. Yeah. And this was so fundamental. And who is Jesus? (laughs) Right. Wow. Without a doubt. Yeah. Right. So St. Cyril lived from 313 to 386. So let's contextualize it. He was born a year after Christianity was legalized, that was recognized in the empire. It wasn't the formal state religion, but that happened in his lifetime too. But so theoretically, the era of persecution was over. 
And he was the Bishop of Jerusalem. That's why we call him Cyril of Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that um, Jerusalem itself, we consider it to be one of the great holy sh holy sites, certainly because that's the place where, where the events of our salvation occurred. <clears throat> its place in the patristic era was still a bit unsettled. And believe it or not, Caesarea was vied for Jerusalem to be the center of what I call ecclesiastical attention in that era, which is interesting. Right? Now we take it for granted. And part of his exiles, and he had many exiles, Cyril, was because of the rivalry between those two seas. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. But thanks to Cyril, thanks to his theological fidelity, thanks to his writings, thanks for, for being such a pastoral leader, that he helped solidify Jerusalem's place right, as, as one of the great centers of Christian faith. Now, a couple of things about Cyril. Everybody recalls, who has listened to this podcast, we have often spoken of the Arian controversy. There was a time when the sun did not exist. That quoting the Psalms, he is higher than the angels, but not equal to God. That Arianism held that Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, was the highest of all creation, but was in fact, in some sense, created. Therefore, not fully God. Right. Cyril was in the midst of that, as all the fathers were. And Cyril was clear to reject that. And that's another reason why he was exiled, because emperors came and gone who professed the faith, quote unquote, but some were Arian and some were Orthodox, Orthodox in the sense of follow what Nicaea taught right. in 325. And so it depended if a bishop was Arian, he was in favor when the emperor was Arian and vice versa. So you can see, so in this era, we have for the first time on a large scale, relatively speaking, the practice of deposing bishops. Hmm. That is one bishop in a council or region declaring you as a bishop out of office. Could you imagine if we could do that now? <laughs> right? No comment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But but again, that was a time when the church structure was solidifying that Peter yeah. and his successor had that authority. But this time, councils did. So he was deposed. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's, the thing for me about the uh, the uh, Cyril and um, Athanasius and the the fathers at Nicaea is that they, like you said, they were, they were kicked out. Some of them lost their lives. They really fought hard over this idea that Jesus is consubstantial with the father. Mm -hmm. And so like, I try to tell my kids, like when you go to mass and you say the creed, that shouldn't just be like a whole hum thing that comes out of your mouth. I mean, people died over that word. <laughs> Without a doubt, and, and again, it was and it was. Um, um, this may be oversimplifying it, but it was a sincere controversy. I'm not sure there were too many in the controversy. I'm not sure there was anyone in the controversy that actually was trying to undermine Christian faith, but they honestly believed. 
trying to integrate philosophy, and that was part of the difficulty, is trying to find the philosophical basis that would make the faith, mm -hmm. hang the faith, right, in such a way that reason and faith were actually harmonious, which they should be and are meant to be. It, that's, it was, there was honest disagreement. So homoousios of the same substance of the father. We have now in the creed consubstantial. And I remember when they retranslated the creed, people said, well, what is the big deal? What is this word? What are you talking about? Right. But it goes back to what you just said. It's linking us to 1700 years ago and those who, upon which we stand, who had to struggle with what terms can actually help us rationally to explain or logically to explain what we're talking about. That is the same substance so that he is fully God. That is what that means in the creed today. And when we say it, we have to understand what it means. We are affirming the complete, full, and unequivocal divinity of Jesus, without which we are doomed. Yes. Amen. Right? Put it just that way. Now, Another thing about Cyril that's interesting is that he was maligned and deposed because he was accused of selling church property, which he did, which he did. And a bishop's, one of his prime responsibility is to protect the patrimony of the church, theological, its people, which is his greatest treasure, and the stewardship of its goods. But he did it because there was a famine in the region at the time. And he spent the money to feed his people. And he was still deposed. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine? Yeah. Right. I, <laughs> right. That's all I have to say. Yes. Do you think we have, uh, do you think we can squeeze one more in before the break, Excellency? Well, the one other thing I wanted to mention about oh, yes. Cyril okay. is he is known for his catechetical lectures. And if you or anyone who's listening wants to have a very pastoral, accessible, and interesting read, read those catechetical lectures, 23 of them. Okay, we're talking the fourth century. But you could sense this man who had a very merciful, forgiving heart, very pastoral leader, wants to help instruct the people going through what we call now the RCIA to be entered into the church. It's fascinating. It's well worth the read. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's let's actually. I'm just looking at the time. Let's actually take a break, and we'll, we can yep. cruise through uh, the other five uh, on the other. If side. we have time, yeah. Otherwise, we leave people in suspense. <laughs> there you go. Yes. Keep them wanting more. You're you're good at show business, Excellency. <laughs> All right. So this is let me be frank on the Veritas Catholic Network, and we'll be back with more Saint stories. If you're concerned about your end-of-life plans, searching for a Catholic cemetery, or have loved ones who are buried in one of the 14 Catholic cemeteries throughout Fairfield County, now might be a good time to begin planning for yourself or for other family members. Call one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 to leave a message or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Many people don't realize that they can be buried with their deceased loved ones, even if all of the family's in-ground plots have been taken. The Diocese of Bridgeport Catholic Cemeteries provides in-ground burials, as well as columbarium and mausoleum options. This makes it possible to unite your family together in the same cemetery, and it's an opportunity to build a bridge for your family back to the church. Talking about this issue is not easy, but pre-need planning makes your wishes clear, reduces cost, 
and helps your family avoid difficult decisions at a time of grief and loss. You can start your planning now by contacting one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. We can guide you through the options, regulations, and considerations to help you make the best decisions for your family. The number is 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Welcome back to Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. Uh, So, Excellency, those were three, well, four, I guess, since Perpetual and Felicity were together. Correct. We did. You know, you you see, you corrected. Good. We did do four. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, Who's next? Well, we're going to skip a thousand years, as only a Catholic can do, (laughs) right? (laughs) And um, today we're taping, always, as people know, we tape in advance. So today is the feast of the woman who, on today's March 9th, that we want to settle a bit, just reflect on her life, which is St. Francis of Rome. Hmm. And she lived at the end of the 14th, beginning of the 15th century, 1384 to 1440. In fact, she died today. And of course, she was a mystic. She was a wife. She was a mother. And she was an oblate. She was not a religious. So she was not a sister. She's a layperson, which is fascinating, right? Now, context again, tremendous. This is the Renaissance. Now, we know about Renaissance art and music. We also know about the laxity that went on. We know about the, the state of morals of many individuals. This was the rediscovery of humanism, the same type of humanism in a sense that Irenaeus sung about, right? the importance of humanity, but in a very almost quasi, if I could use secular way, so it led to many abuses. Hmm. So it was a time that demanded a tremendous amount of reform. And that is why you have the, 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 uh, the figures such as Francis of Sisi and Dominic and St. Catherine and all of these individuals rising up as towering figures, right, to bring reform. Okay. So the fact that she's a laywoman, a mother, and a wife is fascinating to me. Because even then, the church was making clear that holiness doesn't rest with the clergy and religious. It's number one. Number two, in Italy, because she's friends of her, in Italy, it was open warfare, literally warfare. The popes had armies that went to battle with other Italian principalities, most especially Naples, for territory. And control, again, it is so foreign to our thinking. <laughs> but nonetheless, nonetheless, it's the truth. Yes. It's the history. Yep. Right? And her husband got involved in those wars. Her husband got wounded in those wars. Her husband was, he, she tended to her husband. Even though, if I'm not mistaken, if I remember correctly, her marriage was arranged. Hmm. And it was still very happy. Right? They were They were happily married for many, many years. Many miracles attributed to Francis and her great desire, her great desire um, to seek the poor, to help the poor. This was the age of um, the plagues. 
And remember, the plagues occurred, literally the plague, because of very poor sanitation. Because the plague itself is carried by rodents. In Rome, you could imagine how many rats lived in Rome hmm. with all of the lack of sanitation and food and all the rest. She was, of course, born. In, she was born um, herself into, I think, a, a family of you know relative means. She married a man who had tremendous means, and she turned her estate into literally a hospital, distributed food and clothing to the poor. And her son Baptista. There's one story, right, where her son was held ransom. Because of the war, right? Because of these dueling wars. He was to be given over his ransom to try to create a truce. And she prayed to Our Lady that her son be spared. And wouldn't you know it, the horse that was supposed to carry her son as ransom refused to move. <laughs> they beat the poor horse, whipped the horse. Over and over again, the horse refused to move. Wow. So the soldiers gave up and left him behind to his mother. She lost two children to the plague as she was tending to others. And the funny thing is, Rome itself right, was so devastated by all of these wars. It literally was in ruins, so much so that there are accounts that in this time in the city of Rome, wolves, wolves would go through the city because it was con they considered it to be kind of like forest, wilderness. Wow. Now, we imagine the majestic city, right, that was born right, th right through the Reformation. Right. It was not. And she would, all right, go and drive her wagon through the countryside at night collecting herbs, wood, and then in the day go back to the hospitals that she had founded Right with the oblates that are basically lay people surrounded by a charitable organization, a charitable work, to feed all these poor. It's just amazing. I, I, she found it a must. She's an amazing woman. Yeah. Right. And the funny thing is, this is just a tidbit, but she is the patron saint of automobile drivers. How is that? <laughs> because there's a legend, and it is a legend, that when she went into the forest to get the herbs and, and wood. An angel would accompany her with a lantern to light the way, keeping her safe as she did her work. And that being the case, she is the patron saint of automobile drivers, particularly those at night. Wow. Fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely fascinating. Oh my gosh. Okay. okay. Now, so overlaps with Francis, the next saint, St. Francis of Paola. Now, St. Francis of Paola has a great following among uh, a certain region of Italy, right? Which is where Paola is. It's Cosenza, Calabria. So the Calabrese, of which I'm not Calabrese, but the Calabrese have tremendous devotion to St. Francis of Paola. And in Williamsburg, there is still, even though the parish is merged, the Church of St. Francis of Paola, where this is a big deal. He's mm -hmm. a big deal. Now, why do I raise him? I raise him because um, he overlapped with St. Francis of Rome for 24 years, right? And um, he was a friar, but again, not a priest and not a bishop. So you have an example of a lay person. Now we have example of a brother who is right, a man of extraordinary holiness. And 
are you familiar with anything with St. Francis of Paola? No, actually, no. Okay. So basically he too was born into a family, right? And, uh, you know, not of tremendous means, but had land at least. And Francis of Paola was called from early in his life to seclusion. So he basically was, for most of his life, a hermit. And he attracted others to that life. He followed in the radical poverty and simplicity of St. Francis. And the order that was created out of it, right, right, was called the Little Ones, the Minims, Minim, M-I-N-I-M-S. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. The Little Ones. But he was leavened for great reforms. This is interesting. He's, he lived for years secluded in a cave in his father's estate. And then he moved to another cave closer to the ocean. Again, in seclusion. And yet people heard of him and people came. Mm. And he began to create. And then he had to create uh, like a, a monastery for them. But to talk about um, severity. So, you know, the religious have three vows, poverty, chastity, and humility. Okay. He had a fourth vow, which was, and I'm, I'm characterizing it as fourth vow. Yeah. He abstained from all animals and animal products, he and all his followers, which means no animal, no meat, I believe no fish, no cheese, no eggs, no milk, no dairy, permanently. Wow. So he was like, he could be the patron saint of vegans <laughs> because that's basically what, what St. Francis was. And you know why? Why? I mean, he may be the patron saint, but I really don't know. <laughs> but why? Why? Because of nonviolence against animals. Hmm. Because he took Francis's intuition. And he took it literally to move forward so that you don't respect your brother wolf and sister dog or cat or whatever, or the animals, but that you, you, you condone no violence to it. And I guess from his point of view, even extracting like their milk is kind of like a form of, you know, intervention that he was not comfortable with. Hmm. Now I have to tell you, I personally could not live that life. I could not do that. I mean, I don't know if you could. I could not do that. I could not. That's, yeah. I yeah. Because coffee without milk is like, <laughs> it's just, it, no. Okay. And, and life without coffee doesn't work. So, I mean, there's really no. <laughs> I, also, I, I might also be the guy who goes off to be a hermit and like nobody follows. They're like, okay, finally. <laughs> we got rid of him. There you go. Here he is. There he is. There he is. <laughs> But but what I mean about but he's, so he's a hermit, yeah. All right, hermit by definition, you leave me alone. I'm praying. That's it. I'm praying. And yet the king of France heard of him and insisted that he go. And the pope and he refused. And the pope ordered him to go to be his counselor oh, upon wow. his death, right? And then his heir Charles the Eighth, he also insisted that he stay. Wow. To be a, because he was known as a man of of healing of counsel. So even in his deepest desire to be really in solitude, he couldn't live it for his whole life because he was obedient. Mm. 
which Francis always taught, right? So again, it's just an amazing story. And of course, there are, uh, you know, there are miracles attributed to him. And again, the historicity of these miracles, we're not exactly sure. Like his pet lamb that was killed by these soldiers, unbeknownst to him, he went and he saw the men and the men were eating his lamb that was cooked. And he, he said to the men, well, where, where is the skin? Where is the fur? Where are the, the hooves? Where? And he said, we threw it in the fire. And he went to the fire and called his pet lamb to come forward. And his pet lamb came out of the fire and ho, ho. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> ho. And he named all his animals. Huh. All his animals had a name. That much, so deeply respectful. Yeah. Now, you may say, okay, so this is really nice, but he had an effect in his time. But what else did he have? Well, you know what's interesting? Okay. One of the most famous members of the order of Francis of Paula was St. Francis de Sales. Huh. Now, think of the spiritual impact Francis de Sales has had in the life of the church. Yes. Again, the Lord plants the, plants the tree. And it has roots that are deep, deep, deep within the whole church. Wow. Fascinating, yeah, no? That's, I'm glad I know right. him now. <laughs> I may I just tell one other story about St. Francis of Paolo. Yes. I just want to check my notes here because I believe this is, yes, I'm almost certain this is the case. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, it was St. Francis of Paola who, when returning, yes, who returning, right, back to Italy was not allowed to go on the boat, and so he used his cloak <laughs> to be his boat. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> okay? Now, we may say, no, that can't be. That can't be, but that's, just, that's a legend. Okay, so let me ask you then. When Jesus stood in the boat and calmed the sea in its storm, is that a legend too? Yeah. Is that made up? But he who shares the mind and heart of Christ who is so transparent that the grace of Christ flows through him or her, could not she or he calm the, calm the storm, move the mountain, mm -hmm. walk on water, yeah. use a cloak to do that, right? And when we sit there and we say to ourselves as moderns, well, that can't be. I don't know if that says more about us than it says about them. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. So now we have time for two more. Yeah, oh, yeah, definitely. Okay. So now we're moving into the latter part of the 15th century. So we are just about at the beginning of the Reformation. Two more people we should look at St. Casimir and St. John of God. The first, he dies right before the 16th century begins in 1484 in Poland. The second spans over the Reformation, right? So he, John of God dies in 1550, and the Council of Trent ends in the middle of the 1560s. So once again, for as we get to John in a few minutes, he's in the midst of this church in just huge turmoil, disaffection on monumental scale, right? So let's go back to Casimir. I don't want to spend too much time on Casimir, except, right, he lived his entire life, which was 25 years in total, it could be, is, is circumferenced by Francis of Paola. So he is a contemporary of Francis. And 
He is the patron saint in, in Lithuania. He's also Polish, and he's remembered in Poland as well. The bottom line is to remember, which is I just think is fascinating, is Casimir as a young man, nobleman, son of the king, destined to be king, fought a battle with his father. His father was the one who instigated it to try to make him the king of Hungary, which did not work. All throughout it all, with every temptation you can imagine, in a time where you know the, the fruits of the Renaissance were very, um, uh, very much oriented towards gratification and pleasure of all sorts, and I'll let your imagination figure that out. He was a man who was known to be intellectually brilliant, humble, polite, who always moved the authorities, his fathers and others, to seek justice and fairness for all the people of his time. And he remained celibate, held on to his chastity, without compromise. And he died, we think, from tuberculosis at the age of 25. And his father had arranged a marriage for him and refused it precisely because he wished to remain celibate so that if he had assumed the throne, he would want to be a truly faithful Christian regent, right, hmm. leader. Interesting thing, which I did not know until I did some of this background preparation. There are some images of Casimir that actually have him depicted with three hands. Did you know that? <laughs> no. Why is that? Well, good. I did not know that either. <laughs> and the reason is he has one left hand and two right hands because that's the symbol of how generous he was. Huh. That he didn't have physically a third hand, <laughs> but it's depicted as a third hand to show he needed more than two hands to give everything he gave out to yeah. the poor of his time. Remarkable, no? It's, it's amazing how hard... It must be and have been to be a king or a, or such a noble and a saint. Ah, right, <laughs> right, right. Well, because, well, let's be frank, shall we? When you are tempted, the father of evil will put temptations before you and his evil minions, whoever they may happen to be, puts temptations before you and me um, that are the ones that are the most enticing to us because he knows our weakest points and he knows what of the things of this world can tempt us most effectively to take the place of God in our life. And Casimir, you could imagine, in his time, the amount of wealth and riches and authority and, and power and armies at his disposal and all the rest, could you imagine every possible temptation you could think of mm -hmm. and resisted all of them? Now, let's do an examination of conscience. Not, I mean, just to invite an examination. Yes. <laughs> Not say it out loud, <laughs> right? But so you look at your own temptations, my temptations. And they are significant because we fall prey to them at times and we sin. But could you imagine if we had the temptations he had in front of him, what would we look like if we didn't fortify ourselves in the spiritual life? 
How far would we have fallen? And aren't we grateful that the Lord has shielded us from those temptations? People say, oh, I wish you were wealthy. Really? Do you really wish you were wealthy? Because that comes with perils you couldn't or I couldn't begin to imagine that perhaps we are saved from precisely because we are not wealthy. Make sense? Yes. Yes, it does. And that's why these patron saints are so important because of a young man, or I'm sure, as I said, well-educated, probably somewhat attractive, certainly well-connected and could resist them. Yeah. Amazing. So okay. you said it was uh, ne- the, uh, the next Next guys- is St. John of God. Okay. Yeah, St. John of God. And perhaps we'll stop here. Okay. Right? But, so John of God was 11 years born after Casimir's death. So as I said, he is in the period <clears throat> of the pre-Reformation church. <clears throat> so this is the era of Martin Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and all the rest. Interesting life. He is Portuguese by birth. He disappeared from his family when he was a young age. I forget how old. Eight, nine, ten. Disappeared. His family couldn't find him. We're not exactly sure what happened. History doesn't tell us whether he was kidnapped, whether he ran away. His mother literally died from a broken heart because they never found him ever again. Could you imagine losing one of your children and not knowing? Yeah. Right. All right. So when his mother died, his father joined the Franciscan order. So much were they brokenhearted. And he turned out to be in Spain, homeless, unbeknownst to him, an orphan, with no one to care for him, no place to go, no food, nothing. Could you imagine how frightening that is? Could you imagine what that could do to your personality and spirit? Mm -hmm. It can also harden your heart. You know, it's like Dickens. When you read Dickens and the and the the um, or you watch Sherlock Holmes the 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 portrayals in uh, on in cinema or you read Arthur Conan Doyle in England right uh, of the nineteenth century and the kids that lived on the street and they were basically kind of like um, like little bandits yes. thieves and in our own age when young people are are, are abandoned and live on the street, how hard their lives at times need to be just to survive. Okay, so that was his destiny. And yet a a man who had a farm and had a, a sheep found him and took him in and taught him to be a shepherd and wanted him to marry his daughter when he became older and he escaped. He, he ran away from this man, too, when he was in his early 20s. because He didn't want to get married because almost like Ignatius of Loyola, interesting, he wanted to be a soldier warrior. Mm. And perhaps on some level, some of the unresolved aggression and all the rest, I mean, that, that could make very much sense. So he went into the military, and not to get into all of the, you know, all the particulars, because I don't really know them well, but I do know that he was a soldier, a trooper for almost 18 years. And he desired to go to Africa. And he did go to Africa. And there was, uh, in his religious imagination, he wanted to go to Africa and help those in Africa. And he wanted to go to the colonies in Africa. And he wanted to be a martyr. And while he was there, 
All right, he befriended a knight who took him in with his family, and then the knight fell on hard times. And he was asked to help the knight, which he responded by giving them food and working for them at night to give them. And that began the vocation that John of God is known, right? Because he founded the Hospitallers of St. John of the Cross, which is a dedication, really a religious institute that's designed to help the poor and the sick and those who suffer from mental disorders, because he himself was considered to be mental, right, challenged at one time or another. And he had many visions. He had the vision of the infant Jesus. He had the vision of Mary in his life. And he was considered having a mental breakdown because at 42, when he finally had his religious conversion, he began begging for himself and publicly beating himself and wildly asking for repentance. And people thought he was out of his mind, but he wasn't. It was just a profound encounter he had with God's mercy. Yeah. Having had such a life. You know, and somewhere along the way, which is interesting, he went back to Portugal to find his parents. Now imagine this, Steve. You go back, and when you are asked, well, what were your parents' names? He could not remember them. Huh. I mean, you talk about being an orphan. Yeah. And he found, of course, he had no roots left in Portugal. And then again, went into this odyssey of what I'm describing here. So John of God is a man who, in many ways, um, identifies a spirit with a restless spirit, a spirit who living in the world, overcame enormous obstacles and at each turn chose the better path that God was forging for him for all those years to purify his mind and heart, to allow the aggression to go, to resolve those deep wounds in his family, right? And to be able to give himself totally and generously to the poor and sick. And another interesting issue is he also was connected to the order that St. Francis of Paola started. <laughs> right? Isn't that interesting? Wow. Right? So he was buried in a church that was in the care of the Minims. Minims. Mm -hmm. And he died of pneumonia at 55. Wow. So again, allow me an examination of conscience, right? So we're in Lent. So we think to ourselves, we are generous. And we should be as Christians. In my, in my case, as I've said many times, my greatest possession right, is my time as I look at myself as an individual. And when I share my time, please God, I'm being generous. But what are the limits we put on our generosity? When do we think we're generous enough? Yeah. For a person like St. John of the Cross or Francis of Paolo, all these other people, they probably have a very different response to what we, you, you or I or someone else who's listening would say. And I say this not because we are going to completely imitate them. We can't because we have obligations, we have jobs, we have families, we have vocations, we have ministry. But they are a holy reproach to say, when you think you've been generous enough, look again. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, 
So that was awesome. We'll take one more break and then we'll be back with a listener question. This is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. Be right back. Hey, it's Matt from Restless on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network. Each week on Restless, we young adults restlessly seek the face of Christ in today's crazy and mixed up world. Join us each Friday at noon on 1350 AM, 103.9 FM, the Veritas app, or wherever you get your shows. Hope to see you there. Okay, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. Excellency, this, this one's fun. I think it's fun. It looks fun. Okay, the question came in. It says, Bishop Frank, if you could have a superpower, what would it be? Imagine X-ray vision flying through the air, <laughs> all that stuff. But I'm going to I'm going to hijack the question, and I'm going to suggest a, a spiritual superpower, right? And if there were one that I would ask the Lord, is one that Padre Pio had. Padre Pio could read people's hearts, so that he could be a a better father, advisor, counselor, and confessor. And if I could ask the Lord for any of a, a, a spiritual superpower, I would hope that he would he could trust me with that one, because I think it's, it, it could help me to be far more of use to people in their discernment and in their spiritual journey. Wow. Awesome. Mm-hmm. It'd be cool if you could bilocate too, along with that. <laughs> Ooh. Oh, that that's twice the work. Then. Ima- no, I was going to say, imagine the multitasking. <laughs> All right. So if you have a question for Bishop Frank, send it in, in to us on social media, or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com. Bishop Frank Caggiano is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So is Veritas Catholic Network. And we'd like to thank Foundations in Faith. It's a grant from the St. Therese Fund for Evangelization that makes it possible for us to bring Let Me Be Frank to you. Foundations in Faith is committed to supporting and transforming pastoral ministries in the Diocese of Bridgeport. And you can learn more about their outstanding work at foundationsinfaith.org. Steve, it's always good to be with you, my friend. And I think we have guests for the next couple of, of, of episodes, which is great. Yes. Yep. We're going to have mm-hmm. um, some great guests coming up. And uh, mm-hmm. this was great because not only did we get to learn about uh, some cool saints, but you gave us good Lenten reflections along the way, which was awesome. I hope so. So thank you, Excellency. Would you uh, please give us your blessing? Absolutely. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. We give you thanks, O Lord. And we praise your holy name for the blessings you give us this day. So we ask in all humility that you continue to send your Holy Spirit upon us in great abundance, that you may bless our work and our journeys and give our work great spiritual fruit. And may the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. Okay, Steve, enjoy the week. Thanks, Excellency. All the best.